Welcome to episode 31 of the Civil War Breakfast Club podcast, joined as always by a woman who spent the entire day making green birthday cupcakes for Patrick Claiborne, <laughs> is yet still in a bad mood, Mary Fincher. <laughs> I am only Darren Weeks. Hey, Mary. <laughs> Jesus. How are you? I'm fine. I thought I'd been in a good mood today, oh, but maybe not. Mode. Just a fabulous mood. Jeez. Our listeners no, are going to think I'm some kind of bitch or whatever. They're not going to think that as far as you know. Don't worry about okay, it. Yes, Don't you worry about I it. Know. Anyway, so how are you? What's going on? Not much. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing, couldn't be better. Could not be better. It's a beautiful day here in old Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Clear, cold, but it's Tuesday, almost midweek as we approach the middle part of the week. And today is a couple of Civil War birthdays we have it to talk is. about. The aforementioned Patrick Claiborne, the Stonewall of the West, as some people like to say, and of course, John Pope's birthday today. Neither around anymore, but Mm -hmm. we can at least comment on their birthday. So I guess we can say something about that. And we can. And we can um, also say that tomorrow. Well, actually, no, we can't say that tomorrow night we're having a roundtable because this episode drops on Saturday. (laughs) So the Mm -hmm. roundtable already have happened on St. Patrick's Day. So hopefully everybody had a good St. Patrick's Day and fun time at our roundtable where we did trivia which hopefully will have been a good time. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's going to be a great time. Tomorrow's St. Patty's Day, one of, the best, one of the best days of the year. Anyway, yeah, so we have some fun to talk about tonight. we got some business to take care of, Mayor. We gotta, we're going back east, and we're going old school. We're going back to early 1862 to talk about the Valley Campaign, the Battle of Kernstown, mm-hmm. which is a very underappreciated battle, one that we're going to find out as this night goes on is a very substantial battle for the big picture of the Civil War, and especially in Virginia, that's going to create all kinds of havoc and a trickle down that's going to flow through all the way through the peninsula, really right into Antietam. This will be a fun one. It is. But before we get into that, what are you drinking? I am drinking, Mary. Great Treehouse. It's called Curiosity 106. Like, I'm curious what's going on with you today. I'm drinking out of my Abraham Lincoln mug. Nice. So that's a good thing. Just because I have nothing even close to Kernstown to drink out of, Abraham Lincoln is going to be mentioned throughout this. So we're going to mention him today. I am drinking Good Monster, which you might think I'm being right now, which is... I don't think you're being good. <laughs> which is a New England double IPA. So... It's 8%. It's kind of strong, but Collective Arts always has cool can art, and this one's got some burbs on it. And I'm drinking it out of my John Reynolds mug because I don't have anything to do with Kernstown, but I figure it's in the Eastern Theater, so I may as well choose a mug that's got an Eastern Theater commander on it. Well, before we get into the details about this one, I was actually at Kernstown and visited last summer and got to check it out. It is not, there's not a lot to it. It does not a lot. So there's no surprise that you don't see a mug or a t-shirt because they have a very small little gift store. It's basically in a guy's garage. I did get a pin though, but it's a very interesting little tiny place. It's a lot of fun a little bit south of Winchester. So why don't we talk a little bit about the setup first and foremost, but how this whole thing got started. Yes. So we'll go back and take right after, you know, this is this is the very beginning of, of Stonewall Jackson's Valley campaign. So this is coming right after the first bull run. Jackson basically is going to be moving to cover Joseph Johnson's flank from Nathaniel Banks, who we'll talk about, who's in that area. Now, Johnston is leaving Manassas and he's going to protect Richmond through the Blue Mountains. Do you remember a hundred years ago, we were talking about McClellan, yep. right? When he wanted to attack after the mm-hmm. Bull Run and Lincoln wouldn't let him. 
And yes. then by the time he got there, Johnston took off. This is Johnston leaving here. So he's going to leave and he's going to go protect Richmond. This is that Urbana plan, if you remember from yep. back in the day we talked about. And it's interesting how these things go back and forth, the old battles. But when he got there, he was leaving. This is kind of the, his move is what scuttled that plan. Nathaniel Banks, we got to talk about him because he's from the greatest city in the world, Waltham, Massachusetts, Mary. Okay, the second most famous Walthamite, just by the by. He's an interesting cat. He's a Democrat, but he has abolitionist views. Mm-hmm. He's a Massachusetts guy. He's a former Massachusetts governor, former House Speaker. He's one of Lincoln's first political generals. He's one of the first people that he gives his appointments to. He is. Um, he's got no he military background. Like, he's got n- nothing to do with the military. And wasn't he, like, talking smack about the military or something at one point? Like, he's a real he, dick, isn't he? he? He is. I mean, he has a school of Waltham called the Nathaniel Banks School. I didn't go there, but I know kids who did. Just thought I'd let you know that, okay, right in the town. We talked a lot about him when we were talking about like Meridian and the South and New Orleans and Mobile and the Mississippi. So he, he doesn't really do a lot after this valley, but he's important in this one to a point. Shenandoah Valley is basically, it's the breadbasket of the Confederacy yep. of Virginia. It's where most of the, the grain, cattle, and the Pop-Tarts, and the grain corn, <laughs> all that, all the stuff that they need is going to come from this area. Where I got the flour it, to bake the cupcakes for Claiborne today. Oh, yeah. They must must have came out really, really good. The other thing about the Shenandoah Valley is that it's a natural invasion jump point Mm -hmm. to Washington. So if you're going to control the valley, you have a good shot to run and make a run at Washington. This is what Lincoln is 100% obsessed with, freaked out about at this point. What he wants more than anything, and this goes back to what we were saying before about the Urbana thing with McClellan. He is 100% scared of somebody in the Confederacy making a run at Washington. It's why that McClellan, if he was going to attack the peninsula, he had to make sure he left people behind to guard Washington. And he wants to make sure that no matter what happens, it's protected. Banks, he's got 30,000 guys. His job was simple. His job was to clear the valley of all the rebel armies, wipe them out, get rid of them. And then once the job was done, he was going to send some of his troops back east to McClellan to help capture Richmond and help guard Washington. Mm -hmm. So in a nutshell, that's what McClellan's job was. A lot of this campaign is going to be based on that. You can see Lincoln's point, but Lincoln's also trying to serve too many masters here at the same time. He's trying to, he has too many balls in the air is what he's trying to do. Yeah, no, he does. Also in the Shenandoah Valley at this time is James Shields, who's also connected to Abraham Lincoln. He's Irish-American down Democrat, U.S. Army officer, senator from three different states, Illinois, Minnesota, Missouri. And before he actually moves to the U.S., he spends time in Quebec where he opens a fencing school. So he spent a little bit of time in my country as well. Well, we weren't Canada yet, but still. He settles in Illinois. Lincoln (laughs) throws some shade at him in the newspaper one time, and then Mary Todd gets involved. And the next thing you know, the two of them are going to have a duel together. Yeah, he's he's the the state auditor in Illinois. And so Lincoln, there's a big debate going on about paper, about currency. You try to get paper money. The people in the state still want the gold and the silver. Basically, it's crashing the state's economy. It's just that they're, they're state bank. So Abraham Lincoln and Mary... Okay, decide they're going to go on a letter writing campaign, a vinegar valentine, as they say, right? <laughs> where he's going to start writing to a newspaper and they're going to pretend to be someone called Aunt Becca. That's the name they're going to use, their fake name. They're going to be upset about this, it's going to cause all kinds of problems. At some point, Abe stops doing it. I don't know, he just, I don't know, got sick of it, right? But Mary keeps doing it. So she keeps writing these letters without Abe's knowledge. She calls Shields a, a, a liar and a fool. She has that great quote where she says, if I were deaf and dumb, I could still tell Shields by his smell. 
So she's throwing some, throwing some heat. So needless to say, Lincoln finally fesses up, takes responsibility, says, yeah, but it was, it was me. He's an, at the time, he's an attorney. And he gets challenged to that duel. He goes to Bloody Island, which is off the Mississippi near St. Louis. And they actually get there. They're going to duel Abraham Lincoln, James Shields. And, and he's going to be stopped by a congressman named, named, named James Harden. They're going to ultimately, Shields and Lincoln are going to become best, like good friends afterwards, which is kind of funny that you go from, from a basic situation where going to duel somebody to yep. being pals. Well, the funny, th- the, the other funny thing about this story is that Abraham Lincoln did not like to talk about it with anybody. And there was somebody that asked him about it when he was president. And he was like, if you want to stay my friend, you will not mention this. He was very embarrassed by it, which is hilarious. Yeah, I, I, mean, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, he's, I mean, he's, it's kind of like the silence do good letters a little bit. Yeah, you know, that, yeah, that's, yeah. Except he's just throwing heat. But so he's there. But on, on the southern side is Stonewall Jackson. So Stonewall Jackson's got a small arm. So he's only got 5,000 guys. He's been named the commander of the Valley District. This is like November of 1861, right around mm-hmm. there. His headquarters is going to be in Winchester, okay, right there in Virginia. And he's a former VMI professor and he's, you know, the hero of First Bull Run. And he commanded that Stonewall Brigade. Mm-hmm. And he had some other militia tr- groups with him too. There was a time he had William Loring with him, who he didn't like. He's also got, speaking of guys he did like though, he's got cavalry under a guy named Turner Ashby. Ooh, right. Ashby's an interesting character. So he's 33 years old, three years old at the time of this campaign. He's from Virginia. Growing up, he had a pet wolf called Lupus. <laughs> he's described by Henry Kidd Douglas as riding his black stallion. He looked like a knight of olden time. Altogether, he was the most picturesque horseman ever seen in the Shenandoah Valley. So he's given Jeb Stewart a bit of a run for his money, mm-hmm. but he's not exactly a great guy. Although the media is portraying him as the very model of equestrian gallantry, this is a guy who in 1861, he and his men apparently found some dead Union soldiers, stripped them of their clothing, and proceeded to lay one of them out crucifixion style with holes in their palms. So he's not this gallant guy that the media's portrayed him to be. But the reason that people say he was that way is there's he and his brother Richard were in the seventh Virginia Calvary at the beginning of the Civil War and Richard was brutally wounded in front of Turner had a very bad head wound from a Union soldier. Richard fell off his horse, the Union soldier took his spurs and his horse and Richard ends up dying a week later from his wounds and it was said by one of Turner's friends that from that hour Turner Ashby was a changed man so Gwyn in his biography of Stonewall Jackson describes Turner Ashby as like says he's basically a cold-blooded killer because of this incident yeah he flipped I mean Richard you know there's a story where Richard he got his brother's body Richard in his body been bayoneted several times and and he was if not point on you know Ashby was basically obsessed with revenge and he had some history Mm -hmm. to him He's a guy with, you know, he's from Virginia. His father was in the 1812 war. When you guys burned the White House down, he's a grandson of American Revolutionary Vets. So mm-hmm. he was with Jackson to Harper's Ferry in 1859. The other thing about him, though, is but he was friends with Louis Armistead, which is kind of weird if you think yeah. about it. But he also, you know, you mentioned the South Virginia. He was... He was there when they captured John Brown, and he was there when they executed John Brown. Whether he was there or not, but it's, his troop was. He always said that the John Brown raid was the beginning of the Civil War. He didn't talk about Sumter. He talked about John Brown. But he's somebody who had a livid hatred towards the North because of his brother. And he would become Stonewall's, you know, his buddy. He trusted him. And we'll find out probably a little bit too much with this. And so as Banks basically, we mentioned before how Banks had one, one job to clear the valley and send his troops over east. Jackson lived 
literally had one job. It was simply to keep the union in the valley, to keep them busy. Because what he wanted to do was he wanted to kind of fly around and be a, and just be a pain in the ass mm-hmm. to keep those troops from going to McClellan. Yeah. So he figured any troop, and then a bonus would be if he could actually make a run in Washington and get Lincoln to pull more troops away from McClellan, that would be a super bonus because that was the whole plan. Create a diversion. That's kind of the whole thing what he wants to do. But they want to play on Lincoln's paranoia as far as they're going to attack on Washington. I'm sure they would have loved to attack Washington, but, but Jackson knew he didn't have enough guys. He didn't have enough guys to go to Washington. He didn't have enough guys to keep them in the valley. Whatever it was, that was his plan. So on February 26th, 1862, Banks is going to cross the Potomac. He's going to advance into the valley with his 30,000 guys. Jackson, he was smart at this point. He's sitting in Winchester, sees them coming, and he goes, well, let's get the hell out of here because he knows they're all numbered, basically five to one. But he does vow to return, tells the people in the citizenry, I will be back, I will yep. be back. But his again, what, what is this? People of Winchester. Yeah, and if, you, if you go to Winchester today, there's all kinds of Jackson stuff. What that retreat does though, right? Banks gets to walk, gets to Winchester and he sees them gone. What does this do to Banks? It tells Banks that part of his plan has been accomplished already. He thinks he's cleared the valley. They're gone. Right, he's thinking. Well, this march I did. Well, this is easy. They're gone, so that's pretty set. So he, he thinks it's time to spring part two of my plan. I've got them out of the valley. Now it's time to start moving troops back east. So he's going to start moving. So he has three divisions. Right, he's going to have John Sedgwick. He's got Alpheus Williams. He's got James Shields. He is going to move two out of those three, Sedgwick and Williams. He's going to send back to Washington for reassignment. Basically free up troops to be used by McClellan in the Peninsula campaign. Because this is a big deal, the Peninsula. This is, they think this is going to be the end. And so, but they want to protect Washington at the same time. He leaves that one division in the valley in a place called Strasburg, Virginia. Shields is going to basically be there. He's going to kind of hang out there as Jackson is going to stay south. And he's going to kind of formulate what his plan is going to be going forward. It's going to take a couple of weeks, but he's finally going to spring it towards the end of March. And the other thing too is the one person that is kind of behind this plan for Jackson is Jefferson Davis's military advisor, who at this Mm -hmm. time is General Lee. General Lee's not yet commanding the Army of Northern Virginia, as he will be soon, but he's the one that kind of says to Jackson, This is what we need you to do. Once the whole Valley campaign is said and done, and we do plan on doing an episode, devoting an episode on the Valley campaign at some point, it is going to be considered one of the most brilliant of the Civil War that happens. He's definitely going to have his Oliver Otis Howard shoes on there because he was moving very, very <laughs> well, fast. There's our so. Howard reference. Yeah, we were wondering where we were going to get it in. <laughs> so, so March 21st, you know, 1862, Stonewall Jackson, he thinks... And this is where the big mistake, as we talk about this, we're not going to endear ourselves to old Stonewall because this is really his big mistake, this whole this whole campaign. Mm-hmm. So he sees Banks, quotation fingers, retreating. That's how he thinks. He sees those guys going to Washington. So he thinks that he's going to be going. So now he sees his chance to maybe go back and take Winchester again because he wants to go back. He vows to go back. So he sends Turner Ashby. We just talked about his cavalry guys up in the area. And he comes back and he reports that they're leaving. And there's only four regiments left behind that everybody else is gone. Now, Shields wasn't retreating. He was reforming. The citizens who are the spies in the town in Winchester, they give him bad information. And this is where Ashby makes a huge mistake is he doesn't check a second source. He goes, basically goes on Wikipedia and says, that's it, goes with it. Yep. He doesn't follow up on it. And that's kind of a surprise at him because he doesn't do it. So he doesn't verify the info. So he definitely got it off Twitter. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> you know, no doubt about that. But he takes that information on that there's only four regiments in that area. Everybody else is gone, passes it on to Jackson, who also doesn't verify it because he's trusting Ashby. 
He's like, well, if Ashby says there's only four, then there's only four. I'm going to take his word for it. So he's going to decide he's going to march his 3,000 guys up towards Winchester. What he doesn't know is there's 8,500 Union guys still there. There's not a couple thousand, so there's, there's a ton. He basically is going to have to move pretty, pretty quickly. So to your point, he knows, though, that at some point he's going to have to engage him. He's going to have mm-hmm. to fight Shields or whoever's there. Because he's not sure who's there, but he knows his if there's four regiments, we're going to have to fight. We're not going to just, they're not just going to leave. They're not completely leaving. So there's going to be some left. So he knows the only way to do it, he's got to pursue and chase him down. So that's what he does. And so what you alluded to a second ago, he forces his army to march 40 miles in about two days. And they're fast, right? They call them the foot cavalry is the nickname they get, which which comes out later in the campaign too, as this goes on. But they get up there really, really quickly. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, no, they they do. And this is where, as you said, like they become Jackson's foot cavalry in doing this. But on the way, like a lot of men drop out from exhaustion. Mm-hmm. And Jackson, you know, said to them, you can march or walk however you want, as long as you keep up with us. But meanwhile, you know, he's got men that are, they might not necessarily be dropping out from exhaustion. Though at this point, they might be reaching their fuck this moment. So on Sunday, 23rd yeah. of, of March, okay, they're going to reach a little towny village called Kernstown, yeah. which is just south of Winchester. And it's a small little place, a little, little village, a little hamlet. And the ironic thing about it was Sunday is the day that they realize this is going to be the day of the fight. Yeah. And Stonewall Jackson, guess what? He doesn't like to fight on Sundays. So he thinks it's a sin to fight on Sundays. But you know what, though? He finds out that's what the union is. And he says, just like the movie, it's God's will. Yep. Yeah, so he writes his happen. wife and, and tells her that. The day before, though, there had been squirmishing at Winchester. And this is where James Shields ends up getting wounded because this is where Ashby finds the supply trains is around that area and he's starting to like fire on them and Shields ends up taking just some, it's some shrapnel. So it's kind of minor wounds, but it's to the point where he can't command. So command goes to Kimball Mm -hmm. in this case. And that is who is going to be facing off against Jackson on March 23rd. And as you said, that is a Sunday and Jackson did not like to fight on the Sabbath. He definitely does not. No, he's going to get up there, but he's going to stay back. He's going to stay back with the 5th Virginia. He's not going to be up front with the other guys. But he's still under the impression that most of the Union troops have left the area. There's just one brigade, four regiments that are going to be there on a ridge north of Kernstown in a place called Pritchard Farm. Pritchard Farm is just like it sounds. It's a bar farmhouse with a big field. He basically is going to dispatch a guy named Samuel Falkerson's brigade. All Virginians here, 23rd, 37th Virginia. He's got artillery under Albert Lane, uh, Lanier. He's also going to send up his old Stonewall brigade under the name, under Richard Garnett's leadership, who mm-hmm. we'll find out a lot. This is the second, the fourth, the 5th, 27th, in the uh, 33rd Virginia. So he's going to set a handful of guys. Now there's going to be 16 guns that are going to be pitched on a ridge just north of Pritchett's farm on, on, our, on a ridge, okay? In a place called Sandy Ridge right in that area. He's also going to have Ashby's Cavalry and Jesse Burke's Brigade, 21st, 42nd, 48th, in the 1st Irish Battalion, St. Paddy's Day tomorrow, yeah. so we're going to mention the Irish Battalion. They're going to be there as well. And what they're going to basically do is they're going to have attack the flanks, they're going to attack the guns, and they're going to have Ashby and, the, and Burke, they're going to attack the middle. Now, Pritchard Family Farm is an interesting place too, because it's this is a place where it's been in the family for years and years and years. It's an old, just an old stone house. Samuel Pritchard is living in this house and he's got his, his wife Helen who's pregnant and they have three kids. He was a rich guy in the area. He was a lucrative wheel maker, Mary. So dare I say the money was rolling. In, <laughs> okay. But he also didn't care about secession. He purposely didn't vote the 1860 election. He did not give a shit. He just did not care. But he sees now these union guys rolling guns up on his yard. You know, I don't know if he yelled, get off my lawn. It didn't work. Throw rocks but at them. He, 
he throw rocks at him. But the Confederates basically are coming through right through his fields. They end up hiding in the basement for the entire battle. After the battle, actually, both himself and Helen, pregnant Helen, end up tending to a lot of the Union and rebel soldiers. They tend to a lot of the dead. The funny part about it is he did a lot of stuff, both of these, this, this couple, to help these fallen Union soldiers, too. He files a claim to the U.S. government for $5,694 because his farm got damaged, right? They sent him a letter denied because, I quote, he was disloyal to the Union. That's the reason why I told. Sucks to be the old Pritchards. 11 a.m., that morning, Falkerson and Garnet, they're going to attack those artillery positions we mentioned, those 16 guns on the hill. Falkerson initially is going to get pushed back. Jackson's going to kind of slide him around to the left on the Union right flank. And what he hopes he wants to do is he wants to get around them to get in their rear. And he wants to get between them and Winchester to cut off their, their route. Yeah. Now, again, you don't have much cavalry. You don't have much support to know what's behind that. He's going to try to do it. But mm-hmm. Kimball, he's going to be smart here. He's going to anticipate this move. So he's going to move some guys around, a guy named Erastus Tyler. He's going to take his brigade. He's going to put him to the west to stop Falkerson Cole. Now, as they get down there, down over on the ridge, it's called Sandy Ridge, there is a stone wall that faces just west. They're basically racing to get to the stone wall. You've got Falkerson and Garnet coming up from the south, and you've got Tyler coming from the north. Mm-hmm. And whoever gets there is going to have a great defensive position. But who gets there first is going to be the south. It's going to be it's going to be Falkerson. Yeah. They get there. They're facing this big clearing. They're looking up, and they start to see the Union force. That's over the ridge. So now they can see what they're facing. So he tells Jackson, and Jackson has that famous quote, say nothing about it. Mm-hmm. Say nothing what you see. He goes, but we're in force. So yeah, and, and the thing is, is like Garnett does not know what the battle plan is. And he's down there at the stone wall. And he also doesn't know the size of the Union troops. Being up on Sandy Ridge has given Jackson a bit of an advantage because he's having to, he's now shooting down at Kimball's troops. Like Kimball's having to shoot up. That's really tough for an artillerist. So at one point, Kimball's men are laying on their bellies because they're trying to decide what to do. The problem with the Garnett and Falkerson's men being at this stone wall and they're just like... They're just basically having it out with the Union troops. They're going to start to run out of ammo. But the other thing, too, is that Tyler, as he's marching towards them, he's marching them in such a way that makes it really complicated to get them into a line of battle as well. He does. He has that weird thing where he basically marches them. He kind of he kind of puts them in 24 small, small lines, like yeah. 70 yards apart. So it's one wave after the other, but they're small lines. It makes it very difficult to amass fire. The Rebs do push them back, but the numbers do show because Kimball's got three brigades, not one. Because he's going to get support from his own brigade after Tyler. And he's also going to get support by a guy named Jeremiah Sullivan's brigade. So he's got full banana on these guys now. Mm-hmm. And they, they march that weird position. And this is going on about 4 o'clock or so. The Rebs are holding their own for the most part. But the numbers do start to tell the story. Around 6, 6 p.m. is right around the same time that Burks finally arrives to support Falkerson and Garnett. Garnett is going to basically be out of ammo. Mm-hmm. He's going to be out. He's going to be completely out. This is where all the intrigue happens, right? He orders his brigade to fall back. In his mind, he's doing so to save the Stonewall Brigade. He says, well, out of ammo. We got nothing. There's nothing we can do here. We got to fall back. So he orders a retreat. Doing so, he is going to be on the right of Falkerson. He is going to leave Falkerson's right flank wide open. So he's going to be recklessly exposed on his right (laughs) flank. Falkerson looks around and says, okay, well, I got, they're going. I better go too. So he's going to ultimately retreat too. So they're going to fall back. While they're falling back is when 
Jesse Burks arrives. This Burks is the other brigade for, for Jackson. So he arrives right as they're pulling back and Jackson's with him. He's with, this is, he's with that fifth Virginia we talked about that he was holding in reserve. And he sees this and he is pissed. Probably not enough lemons that day or who knows what. <laughs> he, he, is, he is not in the yeah. mood. So there's a soldier coming by and Jackson yells, where are you going? And the soldier responds, we are out of ammo. And Jackson yells, and hit him with the bayonet. And the soldier looks at him and laughs and keeps running. <laughs> you know, that's the mentality these guys yeah. have. By this point, the Union is kind of pushed forward. Tyler and the other two brigades are going to be able to take that stone wall now. So even if it could go back, they couldn't because they're low on ammo. And now they don't have enough guys. Because now you're talking about 8,000, probably worth to about 2,000, 3,500. So even if they wanted to do it, they couldn't take, ironically, the stone wall. Yeah. For Stonewall's instructions, they didn't have it. So, you know, it really ends up in a situation where this is the first time where Jackson really gets pantsed because it goes back to bad intelligence. It goes back to his decision to attack with just the one brigade because he doesn't know the numbers he has. And this mm-hmm. is the this is where Ashby's intel really did him wrong, though. Because yeah. Ashby was a pretty good cavalry guy. He's someone who should report the numbers better, but he screwed that whole thing up from the beginning and they never really recovered. It's Garnett that kind of really gets shoved under the bus for this because, you know, he's seeing like, we're running out of ammo. What are we supposed to do? He, Garnett has no idea what the troop strength of the Union are, nor does he have any idea what Jackson's battle plan is because when Jackson found out that there was actually 10,000 Union troops and that Tyler's were... Tyler was marching towards them. There's no change of battle plan. Plan. There's no change. Like, or there's right. there's a change, but Jackson doesn't let his men know. And Gwyn says in his biography of Jackson that no commander north or south ever would have done something like this. Like, not communicated that to their subordinates to let them know what was going on. So, had Garnett stayed at that stone wall, the and the Stonewall Brigade would have been annihilated, but he did the thing that he thought was best, which was to retreat. And as we see, it's not going to be in Garnett's favor at all. And it's probably ultimately what cost him his life. Oh, it, it definitely is, wasn't. Is, is this. That night, Ashby, who decides to start joking around with old Stonewall, who yeah. clearly wasn't in the mood, they were sitting on a campfire that night. And, uh, and Turner Ashby says to him, hey, um, they said that they were retreating, but I guess they meant they were retreating after us. And Jackson just glares at him. He says, just shakes his head and goes, I think I'm satisfied. <laughs> he just wasn't, wasn't up for his shit at that point. So give, give Ashby a little bit of credit for trying to bust balls. But, yeah. but to your point, the casualties in this battle, I mean, U.S. had about, had about 600 casualties. The Rebs had about 700. So not a big casualty mm-hmm. number, but is the fallout to your point afterwards. So as soon as this ends, yeah. Jackson is done with Richard Garnett. He's done with him. So he's going to fire him. He's going to charge him with desertion. Stonewall was a big procedure guy. You know, it was a follow the, you know, the, the rules of engagement. So he was pissed that Garnett retreated without permission. He basically didn't ask. He made that decision to personal decision to go. Now, Jackson accuses him of being in, in quotes, cowardice, which at mm-hmm. that time is a big deal. It's a big honor is everything at that era, right? Jackson also is, don't forget, Lee's not around yet. I mean, he doesn't, June 1st, 1862 is when Lee comes on the scene, but Jackson is the, is the man. Mm-hmm. He's a legend, right? He's the most respected by far. And the guy who's the most respected calls you a coward i mean you know it's like calling michael j fox you know you know yellow and back yep. in the future, you, you have it. so he 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 was he was mortified he felt his career was over eventually lee is going to take over and lee is going to actually put him back in command of forget him to pick it so this is going to ultimately to your point earlier 
Garnet's going to spend basically the rest of his career, which isn't going to be long, trying to relive his name and try to recreate his name and get, to get that honor back. He does, and, which is and, and that's what happens at Pickett's Charge, right? Mm-hmm. When he when he he gets you know he's sick and he gets kicked by the horse and he can't walk, so he's going to ride the horse across Pickett's Charge because he has to. He he can't not go after what happened, so he knows he has to. He knows he's going to die. But he has to do it to save his honor. So that's why Richard Garnett does what he does at Pickett's Charge because of what happened at Kernstown. Yeah, and he's, you know, not feeling well that day, been kicked by his horse. His mm-hmm. horse's name is Red Eye, which is interesting. Sounds mean. Before that, apparently he goes to Armistead and says to him, this is a desperate thing to attempt in regards to Pickett Charge. And he's killed within 20 yards of the angle. And the horse is said to have returned riderless, which I think is portrayed in Gettysburg. It comes back riderless. Mm -hmm. But he wanted to settle the record for what happened at Kernstown. The other thing, though, that I find interesting about Garnett is he's a pallbearer at Jackson's funeral. You know, Mm -hmm. so he still held respect for him with what happened. But I mean, if you look at Jackson had this thing where if he didn't like you or if you he thought you were going to stand in his way he's gonna kind of throw you under the bus and he had intel that told him that the union was much stronger you know now this is intel that that is coming in after the battle of kernstown has begun that's mm-hmm. saying there are actually troops there and there is tyler is marching towards us and he doesn't bother to relay that information to garnett who's down at that stone wall and same with fulkerson you know neither garnett has no idea what's going on and he's coming he's in command of the famous stonewall brigade what is he supposed to do he becomes basically he becomes jackson's scapegoat for this because if you look at this battle you know this is not one that like gets talked about a lot you know this this is similar to the to sherman at chickasaw right this is not good performance by jackson here this is him blundering around basically yeah i mean he it's going to be a mistake from the beginning i mean it goes all the way back to the very beginning so you have you know ashby getting bad intel from the people in winchester doesn't verify it passes it on to jackson who doesn't verify it again yeah and moves on that he was right to a point that you know banks was sending people away because he did send two out of the three divisions away but he's thinking three regiments or four regiments maybe a brigade's left behind to guard the whole area i can do this he doesn't verify it he walks into a buzzsaw so Jackson blaming Garnet. Now, this is Jackson's first real bloody nose in the Civil War. This is it. He's going to go on through some big things later on with Fort Royal and some things in the Valley later on that we'll talk about in another, another time. This is the one when you go on these battle tours. Say you go to Gettysburg and you hear these stories. Well, General, you know, Sergeant, um, General Jackson would have taken that hill if he was around. You know, No, he wouldn't have. You know why? No. For one, he knew after Kernstown not to attack a force you don't know the number at. Especially, especially in that situation, in in, in his mind, different country without cavalry support. Yeah. That's why it wasn't going to happen. He wasn't going to be there anyway. But that's the whole point with this. And not a surprise he's going to blame Garnet. But but the interesting thing about this battle, though, Mary, is the Rebs lose the battle, but they kind it's it's a it's a tactical tactical loss but it ends up being kind of a strategic win for them yeah right? because lincoln so, gets paranoid and he's like oh those troops that we sent you we gotta send them back we're sorry he's, he's freaked out anyway so he's afraid of washington dc but he gets caught off guard and it's in his head about dc or washington already this is when he while the peninsula is going on he gets really really paranoid of stonewall jackson it's in his head 
Okay, so this is what we were talking before about McClellan. How in the middle of Peninsula, he pulls McDowell's division out to go send Chase Jackson, to go chase Jackson. This is what, this is it. So Irvin McDowell is going to be sent, 60,000 guys are going to be sent from the peninsula to go chase Jackson down the valley. And so it's going to ultimately end up trickling down. That's going to lead to losses in the peninsula. It's going to ultimately piss off McClellan. He's going to blame Lincoln for the, for the eventual loss in the peninsula, which is going to trigger into Pope. Happy birthday, John Pope, by the way, yep. <laughs> into taking over Second Manassas, losing there. And again, that's going to empower Lee to go into Maryland afterwards, right? So this is all a trickle-down effect mm-hmm. from Kernstown. Kernstown being an aggressive battle by Jackson, albeit a loss, led Abraham Lincoln to completely overreact. Ultimately, it cost any chance of McClellan really taking Richmond. Now, who knows if he was going to take it anyway? Yeah. But I know if you take 60,000 guys away it's going to hurt you more than it's going to help you. And that's what ultimately happened. Yeah. And this is something that, you know, I think when McClellan was at Antietam, he was probably thinking, shit, this is one of the reasons why I'm here. You know, yeah, I, like, because of- this, like, he's probably thinking, you know, Lincoln has kind of, quote unquote, meddled before. And, and here I am, and I don't have the supplies I need, or whatever. But yeah, it, this is a huge trickle down effect. It's a lot like the Battle of Balls Bluff in that way, you see mm-hmm. this, like, it's not a big battle. It's not one that gets talked about a lot. It's very interesting to study. It's one where you know, you see somebody like Garnett ultimately ends up losing their life because they're trying to redeem themselves. But two, just like Ball's Bluff resulted in, you know, the Joint Committee for the Conduct of War, Kernstown has this trickle-down effect of, you just talked about, Darren, you know, just this whole, it leads into troops being pulled from the Peninsula campaign, which McClellan needed those troops because of what he was about to face and all that. And it just has very far-reaching effects in how the Civil War plays out. So that's why it's an important one to study. And not mm-hmm. only that, but on the Union side of things, you have Kimball getting promoted to Brigadier General, and he really is, the M- he's probably the MVP in this battle. He's somebody that, uh, you know, he manages to pants Stonewall Jack- Jackson, but he also pants Lee, too. He's the only guy, to, only guy to be Lee and Jackson in exactly. battle is Nathan Gibble. Interesting guy, Nathan Gibble, too, by the way. So, yep. you know, after the war ends, I know we don't usually do post-war stuff with these guys. He runs, for, he runs for state senate and loses. He becomes a very successful doctor, actually, after mm-hmm. the war. That, that's kind of his claim to fame with that. He's got a um, bit of an obscure life because people don't really know his birth his exact birth date is not known he actually goes on to he's part of the atlanta campaign for a while under sherman but then he has to go back to i think he's originally from indiana and he actually has to go back there to deal with the knights of the golden circle of all things and then you have james shields at the end of this battle who ends up resigning from the army so he gets promoted to major general after the battle but then the promo's withdrawn reconsidered and finally rejected and he's like fuck this shit I'm resigning. And then Lincoln apparently does a under the table thing where he offers him command of the army of the Potomac. And Shields is like, fuck that. No, we're not doing that. And the reason for that is because he did not like Edwin Stanton and he had a bad relationship with him and he probably knew I am not dealing with that man. But the other thing about James Shields too is he would claim after the Battle of Kernstown that he had done everything that way to draw Jackson to him. Oh, of course. That's the whole thing. Of course he's going to say that. Now, I mean, whether or not he did is a different story. If, yeah. if he did, it was smart. Because I, he I knew. Pro- yeah, I probably don't. Th- like, I think just given Shield's reputation, I don't think he did. I think that was kind of an after thing to make himself look better. But Yeah, of course. Just, of course yeah. it was. You know, and, and especially, you know, he you know he gets hurt the day before, you know, 
the day out the day of the battles nathaniel banks is where he actually leaves you know he leaves on the 23rd yeah, the he's off to where is it harper's ferry or something he's, like he's that? going to harper's ferry which which is where you know a lot of, of jack a lot of jacks where a lot of the guys were going but yeah shields gets hurt uh kimball takes over but yeah they in, in hindsight you win a battle go, yeah of course i knew he was coming mm-hmm. we just waited for him here now you could make a case that he might have because he didn't set up those 16 guns before they got there so it is possible that maybe with they saw turner ashby around from the day before that skirmish that they probably figured if ashby's here that jackson's somewhere nearby so maybe he did he might have thought that he was in the area and they were likely to be attacked but he didn't know they were coming well i think ba- I mean, banks and shields were playing down they were telling kimball no 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 it's not a threat and kimball's like fuck it i'm gonna do my my own thing and he goes and does his own thing and i think that's how that plays out i think he knew he was coming but he also mar- marched 40 miles in two days there's no way he could expect him to get there that quick no okay, no this, this, this was something i mean i mean axon is admittedly not my favorite general to study i'm the one on this podcast that refers to him as the claiborne of the east mm-hmm. <laughs> just that's just my opinion about him but i mean what he does here with his men with marching them that quickly i mean he's given oliver otis howard a run for his money with with speed there and actually Sherman no. and seriously Sherman on the March of the Sea as well. Like you figure in the March of the Sea, Sherman's men covered 15 miles every day. What I'm saying is he can't be expected to go that fast that quickly. No. I think Shields probably didn't know he was coming because of course he had to know he was coming. Yeah, I don't think he knew he was coming the next day. No, I mean I, I'm, I'm sure that surprised him. But it all worked out and it ended up being an interesting battle. It, like I said, it tagged Stonewall Jackson's with the, with an L. It kind of embarrassed him a little bit into a point where he had to. He did project on to Garnet. I, I, I feel so like, honestly Garnett to me in this battle is the the Confederate MVP because he looked at what was happening and he was like I can't have all these men killed and it's a Stonewall Brigade to top it all off and this is more than what we thought and really he didn't have he doesn't have the troop numbers he doesn't have the battle plan and when they were doing the court martial it's just Stonewall and Sandy Pendleton that are doing the testifying there's nobody else brought in for it and lee finally steps in because i think second manassas is about to happen and i think lee also saw that it's like okay like enough mm-hmm. this doesn't need to be done but again jackson does redeem himself in the red the valley after this i mean yeah. you cannot deny that he had significant success later on in the campaign oh, yeah, the valley and campaign is brilliant it, it is especially what comes later on or when he does fight against banks specifically this is not his best moment this I mean, this this is probably his worst moment to the confederacy mm-hmm. as far as leading a battle goes but again it's a good it's a good win for the union in virginia at that time but it does ultimately lead to the unraveling of the peninsula so it's a win for the union small picture big picture it's a win for the confederacy because they got the big fish they got to protect richmond because they got to pull troops away say what you will about jackson in this battle yes it was not a good battle for him i don't know if i mean his second part of his plan he talked about was getting troops pulled away from to help he did succeed in doing that unwittingly he did but he did so at the end of the day you can make a case that this is a good day for the rebs similar to the gettysburg thing a little bit the campaign Mm -hmm. bad battle good campaign on the rebel side it's also like chickamauga in a way too where chickamauga was considered a confederate win but who is holding chattanooga at the end of the day rosecrans yeah exactly it's it's the exact same thing and ultimately what happened there you know confederate loss ends up being a huge union victory because who's because rosecrans is the one sitting in chattanooga at the end of the day and they end up holding chattanooga and that was ultimately the goal right there was to hold that city and take it for the union and 
that's what's achieved. So it's, a, it's very similar to this, you know? Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Absolutely. But again, as, as it's like, like many of these battles, people look at these battles, um, you know, in a very small, small level, it, you think, see it as a small little battle, but like so many of these, it has such huge ramifications that affect the rest of the war. Mm-hmm. In a little village of Kernstown, which if you visit it, there's not much there. It's a couple, it's a Dunkin' Donuts, a McDonald's, an apartment building. And behind it, there's a, there's a big field, but it's a great place to visit. Kernstown is definitely one that really needs to be studied more just for that big picture we talked about. Yeah, yeah. And it's kind of that, that's what we said the same about Ball's Bluff is Ball's Bluff needs to be looked at more too, just for that big picture with at the end of that, the Joint Committee for the Conduct of War ends up being established and you have every Union general after that worried that mm-hmm. they're going to get called yeah. before it. So that's definitely a nice, nice talk about Kernstown. I think uh, that's did, some, did it some justice there we can talk about. So what's next? So next week, we are going to be talking about the Battle of Five Forks. Mm-hmm. bring your shad yeah bring your shad and then i think actually we'll be getting into shiloh it's that time of year yep. we're finally out of those doldrums of winter time approaching the spring get into battle season talk about shiloh talk about a bunch of good things coming down the road but by the time this drops we'll have we'll have had our wednesday round table which I, I assume is going to be a lot of fun we'll be ready to do our live the book club is getting oh so close on yeah, the horizon 31st we there. will be having our book club at six o'clock via zoom so it's coming around it's coming yep. around the bend as they say so hope everybody had a healthy and safe st patty's day hope um, things work out well for you so off we go mary so the, the wild blue yonder again Kernstown is in our rearview mirror as we head down the road to five forks with a distant eye heading towards Pittsburgh Landing, yep. also known as Shiloh. Exactly. So everybody have an awesome evening and thank you for joining us tonight or actually Saturday, I guess. That's right. Saturday. Hopefully we'll see you at our live. So anyway, everybody has have an awesome night. Definitely. Day. And final words from you. Again, the pleasure. All yours. <laughs> Say many, many times. All right. Thank you for everybody for your support and thank you, Darren, for being the awesome <laughs> co-host you are and oh, also well, for putting yeah, up just... with my bitchy self. Well, you know, we all have our crosses to bear. Anyway, uh, good night, everybody. We look forward to talking to you on the other side. Okay, see you later, guys. Good job. Yeah.